Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. You know, we are on top of this crypto space here on this show, and it's becoming clearer and clearer that some regulation is coming to the world of crypto. Let's get some more color on that. Mary Beth Buchanan, president of the Americas and global chief legal officer at Merkel Science. Mary Beth, it just feels like the drumbeat is really beginning to, to pound here for regulation of what is a, a growing crypto market. Gary Gensler, a new uh, head of the SEC, certainly making some comments there. How do you think this will you know, kind of really evolve over time? You know, I, I think there's been a lot of really great news in the cryptocurrency space in the last few weeks. And as crypto continues to grow and have mass adoption, not just in the U.S., but across the globe, regulators are taking a much closer look at it. And they're looking at uh, many different aspects from stable coins to DeFi uh, to uh, you know, new expected guidance coming out today from the FATF. It's, it's an exciting time, but I agree with you that uh, additional regulation will be coming. So it's interesting um, to think about Gary Gensler regulating this space. Is Bitcoin a security? No, I, I think that Gary Gensler uh, is certainly uh, in, in a great position to understand the cryptocurrency markets as he's been teaching it at MIT. The SEC has been pretty clear that Bitcoin is not a security. And so I don't think that there's any danger that uh, this is going to change in the near future. So, Mary Beth, the U.S. Justice Department created a national cryptocurrency enforcement team. That sounds ominous. What is that? Hmm. Yeah, the the, um, cryptocurrency enforcement team that was announced in, in early October by the Deputy Attorney General is an effort by many different components of the Department of Justice to come together and to really attack uh, one of the latest plagues in in the crypto space, which is uh, ransomware attacks. Ransomware attacks have gone up 151% in uh, 2021 as compared to 2020, and so this task force is going to help root out those who would use cryptocurrency uh, to try to uh, attack and and strangle businesses uh, in the U.S. and throughout the globe. What uh, you've been involved in the digital space for quite a while now. Um, what can be done? You know, when I, whenever I see a ransomware attack, I always think that's silly because it's not an anonymous um, transaction. We know that it's going to wallets. We know which wallets it's trading in. But those wallets aren't attached to names, right? So what can be done? In order to really attack uh, the, the ransomware actors, we're going to need to see a lot of collaboration between cryptocurrency exchanges, um, blockchain analytics companies like Merkle Science, and the government. Recently, um, or, or rather later in late summer, the Justice Department called the industry together and shared with us some of the information that they've been learning uh, with recent ransomware attacks, and we shared with the government some information that we've been learning. So I think that through this this collaboration and information sharing, we're going to be able to stop uh, stop these attackers um, before they can find additional victims. So, 
you know, Mary Beth, a lot of uh, folks are saying that this, the crypto space really needs uh, regulation, if for no other reason than for it to be validated and for its development and for more investment. How do you think this is going to play out? Is this something that our government currently has the capability to regulate? It just feels like so much is new about crypto and the knowledge level isn't anywhere where it needs to be. I think most of the private sector uh, crypto companies want regulation, mm. uh, but, but they want clear regulation and they want to have a voice in creating it. Right now, we do have a patchwork of regulations in the United States. We have different agencies that are looking at different aspects of how cryptocurrency operates. There may be a few spaces where we're still seeing uh, the absence of some regulation. And what we need to do, I think, is identify where there's a vacuum and create uh, a, a reasonable set of rules that make sense to, to make sure that we're addressing all aspects of the crypto space. I mean, what you do or at least part of what you do is you help financial companies, government entities, as you were saying, um, uh, crypto companies prevent attacks, prevent, you know, getting ripped off, basically. If I'm an investor, my main concern is where do I hold this stuff? If I put a million or two million into crypto, I want somebody I can trust um, custodying that asset. Are we in a place where there there is a safe and trustworthy um, place for me to put those assets? There are a number of uh, extremely um, well-respected custodians that are holding cryptocurrency today. And those custodians are regulated. Um, they are utilizing the latest technology to monitor their transactions, to, to know who they're doing business with. And there are, there are many options out there today from the traditional crypto custodian and even to certain U.S. banks uh, that are um, launching crypto custody services. All right. Very cool to get some time with you, uh, Mary Beth. I hope, I hope we can get you back because um, it seems to me Merkle Science has a wealth of information that I think our clients would like to hear more about. Mary Beth Buchanan is president of the Americas and global chief legal officer for Merkle Science. Now let's bring in David Kudlow right now. He's the CEO and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management. They've got $3.8 billion in assets under management out of Michigan. David, always great to get you on the horn. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, let's talk about, it, seem, it seems like there are so many headwinds. You've got the supply chain constraints. You've got a labor shortage. We have inflation that looks more than transitory, whatever that means. And now um, a budding energy crisis should I be worried as an equities investor? Hey, good morning. Yeah, and I would uh, add to that that we have uh, consumer sentiment has been falling. Uh, confidence in the economy has been falling. And, you know, if we look at the GDP numbers as forecasted by the Atlanta, uh, Atlanta Fed, their GDP now numbers, they've fallen over the past few months from close to 7% projection for third quarter GDP down to 0.5%, dangerously close to a, a quarter of contraction, although consensus estimates for GDP are quite a bit higher, around 3%, 3.5% for the third quarter. So, yeah, we have all these headwinds uh, that are that are coming toward us. I think uh, first and foremost is the, the 
uh, probability, what most people think, uh, that the Fed will start to taper uh, before the end of the year. And that doesn't mean eliminating uh, liquidity to providing, but start to taper and scale it back. And then they're talking about interest rates um, rising as soon as the middle of next year, which we we don't think will happen. But, you know, with that on the, the positive side is we have just stellar corporate earnings in this year. And as liquidity is taken out of the system and we come back to fundamentals, we look at fundamentals for the market, uh, specifically price to earnings ratios, uh, they're very, very good. They've actually come down through the year because earnings have been so good. Uh, we set a record in the first quarter, second best in the second, and we expect a third best quarter here in the third quarter. It's, it's easy comparisons uh, because of COVID, but it's also because corporations are ju- have just got good balance sheets and have done really good in this recovery uh, from COVID and, and going forward. So on that side of the equation, the most important thing, because in the long term, that's what stocks should be priced on is earnings. But, you know, we're just looking at incredible earnings and profit margins in 2021 and and really going, you know, going forward in the fourth quarter as well. David, I look at uh, WTI crude at north of uh, $80 a barrel. Have I missed the energy trade? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so at all. I mean, it's our favorite sector for the second half of this year are still our favorite sector coming into the fourth quarter uh, is energy. And, you know, we, we, we look around the world at what's going on. Um, the OPEC hasn't helped out on the oil front. They've got another meeting next month. We'll see what happens. Uh, but uh, it is, you know, a, a function of uh, this recovery, this robust recovery we've had around the world from COVID and as economies are expanding, they're demanding more energy. There's been significant when we look we look at renewables right the the emphasis has been on renewables you know for good reasons you know we all want renewable sustainable energy uh but it but you know that right now in the u.s that that makes up about 12 percent of our energy supply there's still uh about 80 percent that comes from fossil fuels in china that's even higher so you know we we have the natural gas issues and and Europe and, and, uh, and globally, uh, we ha- actually have coal-burning plants that are being fired back up or increasing production. Uh, we had, we have, we're expecting coal to be at uh, the highest level of use uh, in this country since 2014, and that's because of switches from uh, LNG or natural gas to, to coal because of the short supplies. So I think the energy trade has further to go, and I think that uh, it makes sense for investors to be uh, to, have a, to still continue to have exposure there. What do you think about the rates moves that we've seen recently, David, that um, two years, regardless of region, were sold off drastically at the beginning of the week? We've seen a curve flattening, and we're looking at a 10-year U.S. Treasury yield right now at 166, whereas a month ago it was 126. Yeah, uh, and from a low of of, uh, of around just under 120, about 118, 119, uh, we've had a significant rise. Um, I, you know, I think that's a, a function, somewhat of a reaction to uh, what the Fed has been trying to uh, send signals on 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 their policy. Uh, certainly, uh, the the pullback in the market, I think, was a response to that increase in rates because we we've seen that right. We saw that in the first quarter. We had a similar spike in rates of about 70 basis points. The market sold off, especially what we consider long-duration equities like tech and growth stocks. Um, And we've seen that again here. 
what's interesting now, though, is rates have continued to move higher. We've seen the uh, the uh, markets rebound. I think that's you know we're looking at a, again a strong earnings season once again. Only if you know we've got maybe ten percent of companies that reported, but they're coming in uh, some mixed reports. But overall, uh, we've got about eighty percent of companies beating expectations. Yep. So that's that's helped the market. Right. If rates continue to rise, and it's typically if it's a slow rise as a function of an expanding yep. economy, we can live with that. Right. When they spike or when they go up because of concerns about inflation, that's going to be problematic, yep. which inflation is probably our biggest issue relative to stock right. going forward. All right, David. Hey, David, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. David Kudla, CEO and Chief Investment Strategist at Mainstay Capital. Let's talk now about the leading uh, economic indicators, uh, the leading index um, from the conference board right now, and what that's saying about the economy. In order to do that, we bring in Ademan Ozeldrum. He's the director of economic research and global research chair at the conference board. Uh, if you type in EcoUS on your Bloomberg terminal, you can see the leading index came out at a slightly disappointing 0.2%. We were looking for 0.4%, and the previous month had been 0.9%. Uh, so, Ottoman, uh, thanks for joining us. Why the disappointment? Uh, good morning. Uh, good to be here. So, um, the 0.2% the is less than uh, expected, but uh, just keep it in perspective that that is still a, a good positive number. Uh, it continues a, a rising trend in the leading index, uh, but it is a little bit slower. Um, and uh, a big reason for that this month in September was uh, the large negative contribution to the index from uh, housing residential construction. Um, and uh, some softening in consumer confidence also contributed to that. But uh, all in all, uh, the majority of the leading index components have been rising, 6 out of 10. So that still points to uh, still a healthy expansion in the U.S. economy. So, Ottoman, what do you make of the uh, labor market out there? We've still got a lot of people that are not in this labor force, despite the uh, you know very high number of job postings. Is this a permanent new reality for the U.S. labor market that just fewer people are going to be working? You know, I think the um, the global pandemic has really caused a lot of disruption in labor markets in many sectors across uh, the U.S. economy. And uh, now, um, you know, we're dealing with the Delta variant. Uh, that's creating more headwinds. Uh, it's keeping a lot of people on the sidelines uh, because of, you know, concerns uh, about uh, getting sick and, uh, you know, staying out of the labor force. Um, I think um, in the future that'll um, eventually settle down. Uh, the economy growth rates are, you know, settling down uh, to our new expansion trajectory. And uh, we're all getting used to, you know, living with this. Uh, we're uh, learning how to, you know, work uh, and shop. Um, and uh, I think as things normalize, uh, we'll see labor markets, you know, going back to uh, the, the, the trends that uh, we had been seeing uh, before the pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, that was uh, really going back to lower unemployment rates and even labor shortages. So, well, we have uh, labor shortages now, right? I mean, one of the big problems is companies can't hire enough people. Yeah, so uh, I think uh, there there are probably two factors underlying those, right? 
One is uh, the sort of the course of the pandemic with the Delta variant and people, um, you know, not being willing to work um, uh, in, especially in in-person services. So uh, not being able to find uh, the workers uh, because of that low uh, um, uh, labor force participation. Um, but there's also um, underlying all of this. The context is um this longer-term demographic changes uh, in the U.S. population, um, the aging population, uh, the, the uh, retirement of the baby boomers. Uh, so all of those are uh, really um, uh, leading to a smaller uh, pool of labor supply that's available. And uh, that's the, the larger context that we're operating in. Well, I'm a boomer, and I'm working, and I'll continue to work for a while, I think. I so. hope so. <laughs> Adaman thank you so much for joining us, the Director of Economic Research and Global Research Chair uh, at the conference, uh, conference Board. Again, the leading economic indicator for the month of September. Came in at 0.2% consensus, was for 0.4%. We had a revision as well for the prior month. It was 0.9% growth, and that was revised down slightly uh, to 0.8%, but still uh, positive, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see how this labor market continues uh, to evolve post-pandemic. You know, one of the more fascinating economic aspects of this pandemic and the fledgling recovery is the changing labor market. We've got still five or six million folks uh, that are out of the labor force, yet there are more than 10 million job openings at the moment. And it's just that mix, mix mash mix mash uh, is really kind of interesting here. Uh, how will it develop? Well, our next guest has some thoughts on that, the radically changing labor market. Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and the host of Masters in Business. So, Barry, what do you make of this labor market here? Um, seems to be a little bit different than what we had pre-pandemic. Yeah, it certainly is. A number of things have changed, and we, we've talked about this on the air, about how a, a lot of workers um, took advantage of the past 18 months and having lots of cash in, in their bank accounts due to the generosity of the CARES Act, and they, you know, they upskilled. They, they got certified. They got degrees. And for a lot of dead-end jobs, and, and there are really four industries that have run into a lot of trouble – hospitality, food service, uh, most particularly. Um, and they've, you know, Elvis has left the building. They, they're no longer participating in those careers. And I think what we're starting to see, and I, I wrote about this about six months ago, is that the balance of power is shifting. And it's, you know, we see these regular oscillations from capital to labor and back. Well, capital had the upper hand since the 1980s. It's shifting back to the direction of labor. So one of the cool things about this, maybe not for employers, but for employees, is that they're going to get paid more. Um, you know, whenever we talk to somebody who runs a hotel chain or restaurants, they always say, I can't get anybody to come in here. And I always say, well, why don't you just double their salary? I'm right. sure they'll show up. Is that going to lead to a price wage spiral, though? Is that going to lead to inflation that sticks around? Um, so, so first... You have to look at the context and, and, and look more than just the past six months. By just about any measure, when we look at wages at the bottom half of the pay scale for the past 30 years, they have lagged 
just about everything, just about every measure. They've lagged inflation. They've lagged productivity. They've lagged corporate profits. They've lagged C-suite compensation, which certainly uh, has been fairly uh, robust uh, for the past few decades. And so this is less of a, hey, we're driving inflation forward and more of a, this is a reset. This is a catch-up for wages that really have been uh, far too low. And when you have an economy that's operating at, at pretty close to full capacity, well, guess what? At a certain point, um, uh, the, the, uh, a limited commodity has pricing power. And in this case, that limited commodity, commodity is labor. Barry, continuing on the labor discussion, three days a week hybrid, it just feels right now that that's where, at least in the U.S., this market is going to. Do you think that's the case? Is that good, bad? Do we care? So, uh, uh, again, another really fascinating topic with a lot of moving pieces. So, so first, uh, let's talk about the hybrid workforce, but also within that context, bring in challenging and hiring and, and inflationary wage push. And I have to start by pointing out productivity is, is so important in this space the big surprise from the work from home has been not only was it not a drop in productivity, uh, when you look at the, go to Fred, look at productivity numbers, it's tripled over the past on an hourly output basis uh, over the past 18 months. That, that's a massive, massive um, increase. That's a, that's a huge change from, remember Robert Solo famously quipped, you can see the computer age everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. Well, here we are a generation later from when he said that in 1987, productivity is going up tremendously. So first, huge, huge offset of inflation. If you're paying people more, but you're getting more output from them, it's not inflationary. It's essentially a push. Now, the challenge is having that work its way downstream to bars and restaurants and hotels and frontline healthcare providers in a lot of those fields you're not seeing uh, the same sort of productivity increase except where people have made those investments in technology. So you go to a restaurant and the waiter isn't writing down your order. They're using an iPad and you're not even getting a menu. You're just using your phone to scan that, that QR code on the table. Those sort of things gradually show up to the bottom line. They make things more productive, quicker, better. You know, if restaurants have a faster turnover, they're, they're seating more people. They're, they're making more revenue, serving, serving more meals. So maybe you'll start to see productivity gains there. But white-collar workers, uh, productivity gains have been spectacular. Barry, got an important question. I'm moving back to New York mm-hmm. in just a couple of months. Uh, I got a reportedly a one, one-year-old daughter <laughs> and a um, 3.8-liter flat-six in a stick-shift 9 car discussion. Right. Can, so, you fit, can you fit a b- baby seat in the, in the back of that? Or I think so. But my, my thought is this. I would love to give it to her. I met a guy the other day who had a 9 The 911? You're going to give the 911 to 9/11. your daughter? Well, when she's older. Yeah. I, I met a guy the other day who was with his dad. He was 17 with his dad when he bought the car that he now drives. Right. And But I'm, I'm moving back. Freight rates are like 20 thousand for for a container no, and used car prices are car soaring yeah 
do I let go of it before I come home? So, I mean, my daughter's going to live in a sea of self-driving electric cars. It's going right. to be pretty cool for her to v- get this very very simple question: Is this an air-cooled 911 or a later war? No, cooled? it's a 991, a 2013. So hit that bid. You can sell that, take the profit, and then go buy yourself a uh, a car that will continue to appreciate. Minivan. No, although you don't need a minivan in New yeah, York. You can Uber wherever you're going. But if you want to give your daughter a 911, give her something that that's going to be worth something in 20 years. Uh, a 2013. You know, water-cooled modern Porsche—they're great today. But you know, ten years from now, that that's going to be pure electric. So go back to what is it, pre-1998? Give her an air-cooled 911, and she'll teach her to drive a <laughs> stick, and she'll be a happy camper. I like it. Yeah, I'll go before that because the the last air-cooled was a 993. I don't like the way the head. Lights were so slanty. I like the 964 because I'm a child of the 80s. You know, that's the look for me. Not the turbo, just a simple 964. Maybe even a, an, an earlier 80s Carrera. Barry Ritholtz, always great to have you on. Bloomberg Opinion <laughs> contributor. He runs Ritholtz Wealth Management. And he writes a blog as well called The Big Picture. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.